Welcome to Steam Ripper, a podcast about materials and how we use them in everyday life, where they came from, and what we're going to do about it. Uh, I am your co-host, Spencer Howe. And I am your other co-host, Alex Carlson. Yes, and we are back for round three uh, of the Seam Ripper podcast. And today, today we're, uh, we're taking it to the farm. We're going to talk about wool. Wool is pretty great. Um, here's, a, here's a really basic question to start with, Spencer. Do you know where wool comes from? Yeah, uh, not cows. Leather was cows. <laughs> so wool is something else, and I'm pretty sure it's sheep. Did you know that wool can come from animals that are not just sheep? Well, lambs. Um, lambs are just sheep. <laughs> um, no, I guess I didn't. Yeah, so I think the first delineation that I'll sort of make here is that wool is not fur. Wool is more closely related to hair, and lots of different mammals can have hair. Obviously, wool, I think we all know it mostly coming from sheep, but it can also come from goats, which presents you with things like cashmere and mohair. It can come from alpaca. It can come from oxen and camels, which produces a, a kind of wool called, uh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but uh, kiviet, and and rabbits. You also probably recognize that as angora. Huh. Okay. I have uh, I've definitely heard of most, if not all of those things, but... Uh, I did not associate them as being wool. Um, maybe that is just my my ignorance coming through, but um, maybe uh, maybe that's just wool doing bad marketing. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I guess I'll preface by saying that this episode of wool that we talk about, we are going to be talking largely about sheep wool. Uh, that is what's most present in the market, and I think what, as consumers, we have the, the most access to. But uh, I can kind of elaborate a little bit and say that a defining feature of wool is, uh, as I said, it's hair. And like you and I have hair, but what about like, why don't we have wool? Um, and a defining feature. <laughs> yeah, right. You can have Alex this, wool. <laughs> this is a great question. I think we need to explore. Further. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, honestly, like kind of like how humans have racial traits and like, you know, maybe Irish Irish people have a have a propensity to have red hair more than you know uh, I you know Scottish people or or British people or okay. anybody else has it. Sheep are kind of the same way. Um, you have sheep that live all over the world, and sheep have historically been an animal that can adapt to almost any climate, which is why you have sheep that can live in the high mountains of Peru, and you also have a very similar kind of sheep that can live in Australia or in Spain or Africa mm -hmm. uh, or America. But so, fair to say the sheep is the cockroach of mammals. I mean, that's harsh. They're, <laughs> they're a great animal, in my opinion. They're much cuter. Yeah, and they provide us with... with Warmth and wool and uh -huh. meat, if you're into that. Roaches, I can't say the same for. Well, okay. Um, so what I know about wool is that I had, growing up, uh, an Irish sweater. Big, cable-knit, thick, itchy sweater that looked great, but I hated wearing because it was super itchy. Uh, am I on the right track here? Yeah. So as I as I was saying earlier, like how those racial traits kind of different differentiate between people, sheep can do that exact same thing. And the reason that I was kind of talking about that is 
wool as a hair, um, it can have very different characteristics depending on the sheep that it's coming from and also the region that that sheep is coming from. Um, wool is sort of even more so defined by the actual texture of the hair. And when you're talking about your cable knit Irish fisherman sweater that's incredibly itchy, that's coming from a sheep that's probably living in a climate that is harsher, probably, you know, Ireland. So sheep that are coming from farms in those areas where they are uh, being put into climates that make it so that they have to have more coarse wool. Um, if you can imagine for a second the trunk of a palm tree okay. and you know how it has that like the scaling that kind of goes up the fr- up the side of it until you get to the fronds. Mm-hmm. Wool looks exactly the same way under a microscope. Oh. Um, and the harsher the climate that that sheep is raised in, the more scaly that their hair is going to be. So Irish wool is going to be very, very scaly because it has to be because it's literally a thicker fiber. Okay. So who had the great idea to take the hair off of a sheep and figure out how to make it into a yarn and then make that incredibly itchy yarn into a sweater to put on our bodies. So kind of like leather, wool is something that's been around for many thousands of years. Um, We have records of sheep being domesticated that go back about 10 or 11,000 years ago, but the fiber itself as as a thing of warmth or clothing absolutely predates that. We don't have as good of records for most of the fibers that we've used from prehistoric times because they just don't stick around. Mm-hmm. But uh, probably around the 4th century BC is when we actually started seeing some very basic tools used for wool gathering and textile making in places like Mesopotamia and some parts of Europe. But the Bronze Age is when we actually started seeing fabric in Europe predominantly. Okay. So, um, how do we know how we figured that out? Like uh, the looming of it and all this uh, winding it in the yarn, or is that uh, beyond the scope of this conversation? No, absolutely not. Like, I think that that's super good to talk about. So the thing about, I'm going to go back to talking about the actual fiber itself. What kind of separates wool, and I'm talking about sheep's wool, what separates it over something like say an alpaca or an angora is When you look at wool, like if you actually were to hold a clump of wool unprocessed, like straight off the sheep, if you were to hold it in your hands, it would have this crimping to it, like like it has a perm, basically. It's very, very wavy. And that creates what's called um, uh, mechanical elastic, which is basically when you can pull on both sides of the thread and it becomes longer and then returns back to that crimped state. It's like a rubber band, basically, but it doesn't actually, it's mechanical stretch. It doesn't actually have any elasticity to it. Got it. But that crimping allows you to spin the yarn pretty well. And in, in again, prehistoric times before we actually had like looms and mills and all of this stuff, the crimping in that wool fiber, it is so tight that when you just, Put it between your hands and roll it back and forth over the tips of your fingers. It will begin to align itself with those crimps, and that's how you start getting yarn. So you can do that. You just take a bunch of wool, and you rub it in between your fingers and kind of draw it out in between your hands, and you actually start making yarn. Wow. You, you can't do that with cotton or a lot of other natural fibers because that it doesn't have crimping. When you have a straight fiber, it will just slide apart. So the crimping kind of acts almost as like a natural Velcro in a way. So that's how people probably figured it out, like, 
you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. Yeah. But when, again, like when I talked about the fabric predominantly being in Europe, um, the Britons had a really healthy economy around wool that dates to about 50 BC. And that kind of stuck around forever. Uh, when the Romans invaded, they saw this like very healthy economy and they were so impressed by the wool that, you know, rather than just like wrecking shop and leaving, they encouraged the Britons to continue to farm this, this, this their sheep and make their wool. And they imported a ton of wool into Rome at the time. Uh, and that even continued like the like Romans began to specialize the breeds even more. And because that they moved the sheep down into Rome, where the climate began to be a little bit more warm and stable, that's when we started seeing finer wools and where we start seeing that scaling on the fibers get a little bit less dense. And then that kind of started leading into merino production, which is probably what you're familiar with. Yeah, so that's uh, I was I wanted to get into that. So I'm glad you brought it up um, because the two, I would say two uh, main places my brain goes when I think of wool is one to that itchy sweater I had when I was a kid and two to merino wool, which uh, I'm going to be honest. I don't know the difference between the one and the other other than merino uh, is not itchy and I like it a lot and it's super thin and the other one very itchy, super thick, uh, didn't like it. So what's the deal there? How did we... How do you get from one to the other? Yeah, so merino is is quite literally just a breed of sheep. It actually has nothing to do with the fiber itself. It's not like an innovation or a different way of spinning. It's the breed of sheep. So you have merino sheep. Okay. And it merino became a sheep by crossbreeding. And it started basically, again, back when the Britons started doing this and crossbreeding the sheep to get a finer fiber. But merino didn't really come onto the scene until... The 8th century, I'm sorry, the 13th century, uh, when you start seeing the Spanish kind of have control over a majority of the Merino production. That long ago? Yes. Wow, I kind of thought this was like a uh, more modern, uh, I don't know, ingenuity. Or well, like whatever. a fine wine, it's gotten it's gotten better with time. You need a <laughs> lot of generations of sheep, but it's it doesn't, as I said, though, it doesn't really stop there. So the... They had the Spanish had control of the merino populations for an incredibly long time, and it was such an important part of their economy and such an important part of their culture that the ruling classes of Spain at the time actually made it punishable by death to take a sheep out of Spain, a merino sheep out of Spain. Oh wow! Yeah, and this really didn't stop until the Napoleonic Wars. That's that kind of toppled Spain's grasp of the merino production. And the Dutch kind of came through at one point, took control of a bunch of the, the sheep and shipped a bunch of flocks to South Africa. And uh, from there, the, the movement of the sheep kind of follows that of, you know, colonialism and slave mm -hmm. trade and spice wars and things like that. But um, it really the, the kind of like destinations of the sheep doesn't really end anywhere like they literally live every place and a majority today a majority of merino wool is coming from australia and new zealand but you can get wool from the united states from europe still russia literally anywhere so being a a, a type of sheep does the merino wool change dramatically depending on where you get it from or is that just uh, inherent of the sheep itself it's kind of just inherent of the sheep itself okay. as i said a majority of that merino production now lies in australia and it's like 
Yeah, that seems interesting. How did we get to Australia? It's a funny story. Uh, So I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole when I was doing some research because that was actually one of the main questions that I had is I, I know from being in my industry that Australian and New Zealand merino wool is like the finest standard that we have for production. It's where we get the finest fibers, the longest staple fibers. And I was, again, I was just like, why is it all in Australia? And as I said, sheep can basically live anywhere. Australia is a very hot climate, so that you get these sheep that have very fine Mm -hmm. fibers to them. Mm -hmm. But they were introduced to Australia in the early 1800s by a man named John MacArthur, who was serving with the British military. And he was sent to head up a settlement um, at New Wales in Australia. Okay. And he was kind of a tool. Uh, I was was just going to say, so we have him to thank. This must be a great hero of the wool community. Well, he, I mean, in the wool community, he totally is like he was (laughs) on the $2 note for the Australia for Australia for a little while. That's since not the case anymore, but he was, he was featured on a stamp. He might still be with that one, but uh, MacArthur was like a big rabble rouser with all of his neighbors and local authority. And he actually led a military coup against the then governor in what's now called the rum (laughs) rebellion, basically because the, the governor was like, Like MacArthur came in and was just like, I need a bunch of land. And the governor was like, ah, maybe you don't need 5,000 acres. And he was like, "Mm, I think I do. And the governor brought up a bunch of like basically claims of heresy against him. And like in court, MacArthur like had the NSW government side with him, led a coup, called the Rum Rebellion, got this other governor out, imprisoned him. The governor escaped, stole a warship. (laughs) Wait, what? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Like... He stole a ship, was like threatening MacArthur. Then MacArthur was basically granted this like new title of colonial secretary, had full control over basically anything the government did. Um, then at like a British lieutenant eventually came, settled things down. The governor was released from prison. In the meantime, MacArthur sent one of his sons to England with a bale of his finest wool of this new crossbreed merino that he had had uh, had done. And his son presented it to the monarch of England. And this was all still during the Napoleonic War. So there was kind of like a blockade in Europe around the wool trade because, you know, the wars were happening. Yeah. And it was so fine. The wool was so, so good that the the, uh, the monarch of England was basically like, mm, we didn't see anything. Let MacArthur come back into the country to evade arrest in Sydney for eight years. <laughs> and it doesn't end there. Um, uh, yeah. Put his kids through school, went on a tour of Europe because why not? And then through his own lobbying, bought his way back into Sydney, but wouldn't accept the conditions that he apologized for inciting a coup. <laughs> okay. So he eventually was pardoned for everything in 1817 and was allowed back into Australia, like no holds bar. Um, never faced charges for anything literally never had any punishment brought against him for this behavior. But that's, that is the reason that wool exists in Australia is because of John MacArthur and his crazy attitude. Whoa. I was not expecting that at all. Um, that didn't just take one turn. It took several turns (laughs) that I was not expecting at all. Um, so yeah, I think Australia earned it Um, a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Like I will say like, how MacArthur brought the sheeps in, he basically 
he he bought them from a colony, a Dutch colony that was in South Africa. And the population grew from like literally 20 sheep to I I think it's upwards of like a couple million sheep now. Okay. And as I said, like it takes generations of sheep to do this crossbreeding that MacArthur was up to, you know, back in the 1800s. And what we have today, it's not, I wouldn't say it's considerably different than what was done back then, but it's only gotten nicer. Huh. All right. Um, so it's not all that different, um, like you say, from, from what it was then. Do we use it differently or is it manufactured differently? Um, yeah. Even though it's kind of the same product? Yeah. So we still largely use it for textiles in clothing and in home goods. You see a lot of rugs that are made out of it. Um, it's manufactured differently for sure. Like you will not see anybody using spun looms unless, you know, in, in rural areas of the world, you will still see people actually working on like uh, wheels and looms. But now you will have like large processing facilities that will go through uh, a similar process to, to cotton, which we'll talk talk about, like not like anybody knows what that is. We haven't talked about it yet. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, yeah, you you go through a, a process of you shearing, shearing the sheep sorting it, cleaning it, and then sending it through uh, a process called combing and carding, where you are straightening all of the fibers out, drawing them into kind of big fat yarns that are called slivers, and then uh, more refining those down, down into yarns that you would then use for sweater knitting or rug making or any of that stuff. Mm, okay. So one of the things I think that always kind of comes up around wool is the uh, how the sheep feel about it. Um, this is kind of a, one of the contentious issues is you're, you're, you're shearing the sheep. The sheep need their fur. They need their hair. Um, we learned it wasn't fur actually. So correct myself there. They need their hair. We're stealing their hair. Uh, this is, um, bad for the sheep. So I'm going to stop you right this, there. Is this the case? No. Um, Absolutely well, not. Okay, what what is the case? How does this work? So, kind of exactly like what I've been saying with the selective breeding, the sheep that we have now in 2020 are not the sheep that Mother Nature created 20,000 years ago. Okay, that's fair. We have bred sheep to have this beautiful, fine, dense wool. It is an amazing fiber. Like nature is the greatest innovator as far as natural fibers are concerned, but because of the way that we have bred them, we need to give sheep haircuts. If we don't, they get super matted. It gets very painful for the sheep. It can tear their skin if they get these really painful mats that are heavy. I just saw like a news article the other day that some sheep that escaped shearing basically was out in the mountainsides of New Zealand for like six years or something. And when they finally found it, it was so, it was basically just like one big mat of wool. And it's like the sheep was alive. It was fine, but I can only imagine how much that that weight is and it's pulling on your skin and mm -hmm. louses and lice can get in there and start making homes in the fur. Like it's it is in the best interest of the sheep to get a haircut every once in a while. And I know like I can't speak to the entire industry, but I have followed fiber production for wool from literally like dirt to shirt from the farm all the way up to the fiber production locally here in Massachusetts. And 
For most farmers, it is in their best interest to make sure that their sheep are healthy because what is the point of having an animal to produce fiber or meat or whatever you're farming it for if you have an animal that's sick or in pain or not going to produce the wool that you want it to? Mm -hmm. Um, I will say there is a practice that has been pretty popular for a a long time called mulesing. You'll often see terms called non-museled wool, but mulesing is a pretty barbaric practice in my opinion. Um, you will you will hear different takes on this. In my opinion, I don't personally like it, but it is where a farmer will purposely crop the wool and therefore the skin away from the sheep's bottoms because what happens is, as I said, that hair gets all matted and, and whatever, but when the sheep poops, it gets stuck in the fur and that can invite a lot of flies. Bot flies are prevalent. It can have like a putrefying, rotting kind of effect. It can, it can be very uncomfortable for the sheep and it also ruins the wool around the bottoms. So what farmers will do is that they will literally not just shear, but actually scalp the skin away from the sheep's bottoms to scar them over so that the wool can't grow there. Oh. Which, in my opinion, definitely invites other infections and problems into right. that area. Right. So that's where we cross a line for sure. Totally. Right? And you can avoid like non-museled wool is a term that exists in the industry. Like you can, again, like ask vendors, ask your, if you are buying wool from, from a vendor, you can ask them if it's non-museled wool, the uh, responsible wool standard RWS, you'll sometimes see it. Uh, that certification will absolutely ensure that mulesing is not a practice used. Okay. Uh, there is a good side to this. I know that there are certain breeders in the world that are, again, trying to specifically breed sheep that just don't have hair on their bottoms. Yeah. So that will take generations to figure out. But I think that that's probably the future of of how this is going to go. All right. Um, so I want to jump back to the merino wool. Mm-hmm. Um, because that is what I come in contact with, I think, most often in my life. And it's kind of touted as um, not exactly a miracle fiber, but it, it keeps you warm in, in cool weather. It keeps you cool in warm weather. It's super thin. It's super versatile. You can make it into all kinds of different uh, apparel pieces. Is it? everything it's cracked up to be does it do all that stuff it 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 also doesn't stink is that right yeah i'm honestly i would call it a miracle fiber like it is it is a natural fiber like an animal grew this like we didn't make it in a lab and i'll say that it's we have been trying to synthesize the same effects of wool in a synthetic fiber for you know the past 60 years and we can't and there's a couple of reasons why uh, one, like I was saying, that that scaling that happens on the fiber level, mm-hmm. you can only get that effect with a synthetic fiber by doing something called like air texturizing to it, which even then it's not the same. Like it is polyester is inherently kind of a slippery fiber. So when you are twisting it, you need very long what's called staple lengths and wool already naturally has an incredibly long staple length because of its crimping and because of its scaling. So you can make these really, really, really strong fibers that are still biodegradable, that are still hypoallergenic to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 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 just really, really cool. But the thing that makes wool super amazing 
is its absorbency. So wool is a partially hollow fiber and it can absorb about 35% of its own weight in moisture and not feel wet. Wow. Yeah. And even more than that, it's not until it gets closer to about 60% of its weight in saturation that it starts to actually uh, beat up water on its surface and then draw it away. So this is really important from a sports perspective. So obviously, if you are an athlete or even just like a hiker or anything like that, you will always see wool socks and wool base layers because what happens, because it's a hollow fiber, even if it's at full saturation, it will trap heat. So even if you are soaking wet because you've been in a rainstorm or you've sweat through your clothing, it will protect you and keep you warm. And similarly, if you are too warm because it can expel at that 60% uh, moisture content, it will actually start drawing sweat away from your body and cooling you down. You cannot do that with a synthetic fiber. And it's also why if you I've, I've heard this hikers talk about um, like cotton is a silent killer for hikers. Like if you wear a cotton T-shirt while you're hiking uh-huh. and you get lost and you start sweating or you get wet, uh, cotton does not have that same ability to draw moisture off of your body, nor is it a hollow fiber. So it will just get wet and then you will be cold forever. Right. So wool is great. <laughs> it sounds like it. And it sounds like the sheep know uh, something we don't know about uh, fiber production. Totally. And on top of that, I will also say there's something, there's a byproduct of wool. I guess it's not really a byproduct. It's a co-product of wool called lanolin. Lanolin's a natural oil that's produced in sheep. It's honestly what makes sheep kind of naturally waterproof. But uh, we've been looking at lanolin as a natural protection basically for a long time. And because of the way that we process most wools and like washing them and dyeing them, lanolin is not really present in the end product of wool anymore. So there are certain products that you can get like lanolin saturated wools um, more for, I guess, like home textiles, I think. Don't don't quote me on that. But lanolin uh, is also actually a a pretty valuable co-product of wool because if you ever drink grocery store milk, uh, mm-hmm. vitamin D in milk actually comes from lanolin. Huh. Okay. So it's, you know, it's not just wool. Sheep are uh, a pretty integral part of a lot of different products that we use. You, you'll also see, I'm sure I'm, I'm not a mother, but you will, if you are a new mother, you may see lanolin offered as a, a soothing remedy for breastfeeding. Okay. It's, you know, it's reparative. It's, it's a super high... I think it's a very high protein content oil, but uh, it's safe to use if you are a breastfeeding mom and have sensitivity. It's safe for you, safe for the baby. So sheep have sheep have done a lot of good things for us. That's crazy. Um, what else is left for wool to do? Like, where are we going with this uh, going into the future? Have we learned all we can about wool? Have we maximized its potential or uh, is is there something left? I would say that we don't see a huge amount of wool like we do other fibers in the industry, one, because it's very expensive and because we can't replace it with a synthetic alternative. It's one of those things that considering the animal rights around it, around like, you know, the mule sing of wool mm-hmm. um, and also like the fair trade practices of farms and how, you know, agriculture can get very seedy quickly. I think traceability that our, our friendly word traceability uh, comes into play here a lot as well. As I as I mentioned briefly before, the responsible wool standard, the RWS, mm-hmm. is pretty much the gold standard for responsible sourcing for wool. You should honestly be paying 
a decent amount of money for wool. It's one of the only fibers out there that has not been really watered down by a commodity marketplace. And if you are finding cheap wool products, it's likely coming from you know, commodity wool that's of a worse quality, that's maybe been really heavily processed to have similar characteristics to Merino. But it's a product that you should be willing to spend money on and take care of it. I think that's honestly the one thing. If you are going to spend $100 or $150 on a nice base layer, learn how to take care of it. Don't put it in the, you know, the dryer on super high settings. Sure. Repair it. Now, wool, um, one of the drawbacks is that um, you might uh, pull out your wool sweater someday and find a bunch of little holes in it. This is uh this is the main drawback I think of wool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't really have an answer for that unfortunately. Uh it 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 I guess it ties in with what you're just saying about um being willing to take care of it. Uh if you're going to spend that much money on on this miracle fiber that you can take the extra step to kind of uh do some preventative uh, stuff like get a, a cedar chest or something like that to to store it in. Yeah. Know? And I would really invest in the cedar chest, invest in some mothballs. They do, they are effective. I would not pack your, your wool goods in with other fibers necessarily. Like moths will still nest in polyester and cotton and everything. And it will basically just, it means that they will have not only a safe place to live, but also food in the terms of your wool sweater. Yeah. I would, I would honestly like hang your wool goods as much as possible. Like don't just fold them and stuff them into a, you know, a space saving bag or bin under your bed or something, which I'm guilty of Um, every, you know, shake them out, like give them fresh air occasionally. I think that's honestly the best way to take care of them is to have them out and use them frequently. Uh, I would also just kind of a shout out here as far as like production is concerned. As I said, wool comes from everywhere. Wherever you are local, like I am in the United States, if you are listening in the United States, there is a good chance that you have what's called a fiber shed somewhere in your community. I know in California, it is literally called the California Fiber Shed. Here we in Massachusetts, we work with an organization called CMAP, which is the Southeastern Massachusetts Agricultural Agricultural Partnership. Uh-huh. And they partner with, with places like the New England Alpaca Fiber Pool, which basically is a consortium of growers that they can send their wool to these pools to be processed, dyed, knit into goods if they want to, or just be sent back as raw goods. So if you are an artisan who is looking for fiber, I would really recommend doing some research on your locality and working with those fiber pools, fiber sheds, agricultural partnerships. I know that's how I got put in touch with uh, like the agricultural high school that I did a tour with last season to to actually go to a shearing and see how it's done and see how gentle they are with the animals. Like th- these are skilled artisan craftspeople that, as I said, it's in their best interest to tre- treat their sheep well. And I will never give PETA the benefit of the doubt that it is cruel. It's, you are not, killing sheep for wool it is a shearing that's it is there anything else that we need to know about wool shirling and sherpa are not wool actually that's not true shirling is a kind of wool but shirling is generally uh, a term given to anything that still has the suede on so shirling references a lamb that has only had one shearing and it's generally a byproduct of the lamb meat industry, unfortunately. Uh, that's 
okay. where you're seeing things like Uggs are made out of real shirling, where you have it's it's tanned leather that has the hair still on it is what that is. And Sherpa is a synthetic alternative. Sherpa refers to something like polyester, micro fleeces, stuff like that. So it's not wool. Interesting. Okay. Just for uh, just to kind of wrap this up a little bit, um, the cashmere and Angora, everything else that you've mentioned, kind of the same uh, situation, um, just different animals. Yeah, for the most part. Okay. Same thing goes. Not all of them are killed for their for their wools. Uh, I don't really know a huge amount about the Angora industry. I don't know if they're okay. killed for that so i just, would do some research there but just checking um all right is there anything else you want to impart on the audience about wool or have we uh kind of wrapped it up and covered all the bases i am feeling pretty good i think that as i said like wool is a is legitimately a, a miracle fiber there is no synthetic alternative to it it is worth the money that you should spend and that also means that you should as always be asking for transparency Learn how to repair your clothing. And if you have a a brand that is selling wool, you know, check their credentials. That's I think honestly the thing I'm going to to say every single time is is where is it coming from? Ask those questions. Who made my clothes? What is it made out of? Awesome. Well, that was very informative. I learned a lot more about Australia than I thought I would. <laughs> and um yeah, I appreciate it, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Yeah, if you wanna if you wanna start your own fiber revolution, do a military coup. <laughs> <laughs>